Hello, hello. Hello, happy new year. Oh my God, it was so, right coming out of the back. I don't even know what to do. I, I'm like, I'm hitting, I'm hitting all the knobs. Yeah. I'm like, what Adam do I do? just like flailing, trying to like make so this much. stop. Oh, it hurts so much. It hit me so hard. Happy new year, everybody. I'm so sorry. In this new year, you'll be looking for new. For calm, for peace, and then I come. Oh my gosh. Should old acquaintance be oh forgot? Oh, she's on a roll. And never brought to mind. I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Stephanie <laughs> Hall, but for ghosts. Other, new Year's ghosts. The other night I was thinking to myself, I was really, like really examining Tammy Hall, but for ghosts. <laughs> and I know I had every few months I had this like I was gonna realization. <laughs> but once again, I was like, that makes no sense. Makes and perfect sense. And it, I don't know how it's our catchphrase, <laughs> our tagline. I'm like, this makes no sense. <laughs> but here we are, Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. The other day, um, not the other day, gosh, because it's been a minute. Um, a few weeks back, um, Sam was in town and we were in Union Square. Mm hmm. And we passed by um, what used to be the Union Square Theater that's now being renovated. Um, but I was like, you know what that building was? Do you know what that building housed? And she was like, what? I went, before it's whatever it is now, which is weird. And before it was, a, it was the Union Square Theater. But before it was the Union Square Theater, it was a bunch of other things. But way, way, way before that, it housed Tammany Hall. And I'm positive there's ghosts in there because <laughs> I worked in there when I I, I bartended a little bit. Were uh, there ghosts? And it was so haunted because yes. the theater, the actual theater, is the same theater that was. I'm not sure if they've got it. I think they've got it now. Um, but when it was Union Square Theater, it was the same theater for like it was Tammy Hall's theater. Like there was like a, mm. all their information was up on the. Um, proscenium. Okay. So it was really, really fascinating. So that was. So one might say that these days it still is Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. Well, it definitely used to be Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. <laughs> um, and maybe still today. It, technically, that building can still be Tammany Hall for ghosts. Exactly. So that makes sense. Making it our catchphrase <laughs> three minutes into this episode, by the way. <laughs> Well, Happy New Year again, everyone. We're so excited to be back with you in 2023. Um, we had a crazy good year last year. We're excited to, uh, yeah. to get back into the swing. We have a lot of cool episodes coming up. And we're just, you know, we're so excited. We thank everyone who's been uh, supporting us. Been on the journey. Been on the journey, doing the thing. Uh, with, with always, we like to special thanks to our uh, patrons. We're talking about um, Jordan. We're talking about Sam. We're talking about Christina. We're talking about Carla. We're talking about Amory. We're talking about Christian. We thank you all. Thank, thank you, you all for uh, for joining the journey with us. Um, we're excited for some new fun stuff coming at our Patreon. Our patrons, some cool stuff coming at our patrons this calendar year, which is pretty exciting. So if you haven't joined our Patreon, uh, do it. Join our Patreon, uh, New York Mist. Uh, patreon.com slash NY mystery machine for as little as three dollars a month you uh join the community for as five dollars a month you get a, a free episode every year every year hmm. well every year <laughs> but every month that other people don't get and so be sure to to join it. and you only get it you only get those episodes by joining the patreon and you know how we know for a fact you only get those episodes because i keep forgetting to give christina the login information for our patreon <laughs> and she hasn't listened to our patreon episodes so it's true it's even true. even to to one half of the co-host uh, one half of the hosting it's team it's a secret to me what's on there you can't get it i'm oh. like christina just gotta buy a subscription just gotta, i guess gotta pay i think that's what you said to you like do i have to like buy a subscription to our own patreon <laughs> Like that seems a little seems uh, really redundant, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but we're so excited uh, to be with you all today. In when do we get our next sandwich? Oh, I think uh, we'll do our next sandwich because I didn't do a November or December sandwich. Yeah, I'm. Really I mean, I did them. In my, I did them in my in heart. your heart. You did, <laughs> but um, I'll do did a, nothing for my stomach. <laughs> I'll do a January sandwich for okay. us. Um, all right. So you'll see our next the January theme sandwich. I'll I'll develop that one. Malcolm. No one's okay. no right. one no one no one subscribed. No one subscribed for our fifty dollar deal for improper dude. That was silly. So now for hundred dollars a month, you can get a sandwich every every single month. <laughs> Plus all those things. You know the deal. You've been listening to the show for a minute. If you haven't, oof. welcome. <laughs> Happy New Year. Christina's loud. <laughs> Christina's loud. We're so sorry. Oh my word. Anyway, what are we doing today, Adam? Um, today we are talking about a murder. murder. I think we start the year off with a murder. It's always nice. That's a, it's a good strong start. Strong start to the new year. I was going to do a ghost story, but like I ended the year with a ghost story. Can't start Let's, it. With we that. can't start it with no. one. No, 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 no. Um, so I figured we uh we we start the year with a murder. 
Uh, and we are in the 1800s. We Ooh. are taking it back. We I'm are excited. back in time. And today we're going to be talking about the murder of Helen Jewett, hmm. also known as the Girl in Green. The Girl in Green. Um, which I I don't even think I even mentioned the moment when they call the Girl in, girl in Green because it's such a it's such a like a, a footnote in all of this. In one newspaper clipping, they called her the Girl in Green. Did she wear green a lot? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> in like one photo she did, and that was about it. <laughs> She's the Girl in Green. Like no, oh, she was the Girl in Green. <laughs> Ellen Jewett was born Dorcas Doyen in 1814. Wow. I know. Wow. Girl, she made the right decision. <laughs> Not look. If your name is Dorcas Doyen. I mean, that's what it, I mean. Dorcas Doyen. I don't think there's any Dur- Dorcas Doyens in the world. But if you are and you're listening to the show, we apologize for the judgment we, we, we have we, just exacted. We, we've on exacted on you. But your family name. Dorcas, Dorcas Doyen was born in 1814 in Temple, Maine. She was the daughter of a poor shoemaker. Oh. Her mother died when she was a young girl, and her father remarried. Uh, after remarrying, her father decided to put out the girl for service. Put out the girl, the the wife he remarried, or the the girl, no, her daughter, the, Helen. Okay. Oh, not Helen yet. Dorcas. Dorcas for service, and by service I mean domestic work. Yeah. Um, Dorcas was cleaning homes and whatnot. Uh, by the age of 18, she would move to Augusta, Maine, where she moved into the home of Nathan Weston, who was the chief justice of the Maine Supreme Judicial Court. The arrangement was that she would work there as a servant until her 18th birthday, and then the Westons would raise her almost as if she were their own child. Interesting. Um, working as a servant was very hard, um, but certainly not as grueling as many other folks in the U.S. at that time who were working as servants. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's 1814. Yeah. Uh, so there's a whole um, uh, a whole race of people who are being yeah. There's a it, it, slavery is very very prominent. prominent. And so um, they called this servitude, but geez, I mean, it's, when you're comparing it to slavery, yeah. it's not. And so it really feels more like I don't even know what you would call it. Yeah. It's not how they described it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, you know. Her time as a quote-unquote servant was not all that bad at all. The work was a bit tough, obviously, because you're you know cleaning houses and whatnot. Sure. But in addition to living in a posh home, a great lifestyle, great clothes, great food, she also was given access to Judge Weston's library and became a super uh, huge reader. Oh. Started reading everything she can, learned how to read. Did and you say just... she was a bit of a dork? Sorry. That's just mean. I just <laughs> believe it's mean. And it's rare when I'm the nice one on the pod. I know. I couldn't help myself. I'm keeping I that. I love and reading. I'm, and I'm keeping that I know, in. So everyone knows that I'm. That you made a joke about Dorcas and you called her a dork. I just, it just, it's right there, Adam. I want people in 2023 to really re-examine this dynamic. Like, you know what? Maybe Adam is the good one. <laughs> Are people saying that you're, the, you're? I assume the, the mean one. <laughs> I assume. I try to, when I edit the episodes, I'm like, oh god, that was a mean thing to say. <laughs> Why did I say that? That was a bad joke. Um. Anyway. It was reported uh, that when Dorcas was about 16 or 17, she became sexually active. Hmm. As, as happens. As what happens. It was said that in addition to a few other men who lived and worked about the town, Judge Weston was also in the mix of her sexual endeavors. Oh. Most likely spending her formative years grooming her. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds real bad. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wrote. I, I, I was like, I read this article and um, the article said, quote, the details of her seduction are not clear, but the act appeared to be consensual. And I was like, um, mm. no, no, it's not consensual when you like move in with someone at 13 and spend like the le- next three to four years like when you've been raised them. as the as a, one of their own, like raising them. And all of a sudden Ooh, you start having no. sex with them. No, no, That's no. not consensual. No, That's called no, grooming no. kids. It's grooming. Not okay. But um, yeah. Eventually, the news would break out that the judge was sleeping with her, and so he decided to dismiss Dorcas. Um, she was only 17, so she and the Wessons agreed to say that she was 18 and to end her service. That, hmm. you know, the upon the original agreement, 18 years right. old, we're done here. So that was that. Wow. Uh, three months later, Dorcas was living in Augusta, and she was working at a brothel kept by Maria Stanley. Mm-hmm. She had changed her name to Helen Marr, and soon after, had moved to Boston. She was in Boston then, working as a prostitute for six, for five or six months. And then finally, she decided to move to New York City. When she got to New York, she decided to change her name one more time, and she went by Helen Jewett. Hmm. 
Um, upon arriving in New York, she went to work at an upscale Manhattan brothel run by Rosina Townsend. Helen's sex work became much more exclusive mm -hmm. to men of certain walks of life. Mm. Her clients included successful lawyers, merchants, and politicians. And many of these men, regardless of their commitments to their own wives and families, uh, <laughs> viewed their relationship with Helen as romances. They would take her to lavish dinners, present her with incredible gifts, greet her to many of the finer things that New York had to offer. Wow. She went to the theater. She went to the opera. She was living you know, right. a pretty interesting life while still living at this brothel and working as the sex worker. Wow. Okay. Which isn't like very common to other sex workers at the time. Right. I was going to say this sounds, you know... Almost, almost like what I imagine, like the a, best case scenario. Yeah, and like a courtesan, work. right? Yeah. Like this is like you yes. know, a, a, you know, more than a mistress. It's it's yeah. or sort of in that. I don't know. Something yeah, like I would agree. I think courtesan is kind of like really in that in that vein where it's it's more than a mistress. Um, it is sex work, but you know she's very smart about what she does. Mm -hmm. um, she chooses her clients very carefully, and she's in society because of it. Yeah, and she's getting a chance to like, show off the education that she's yeah. gained through all of her reading. Um, and so that kind of works out. Um, of Helen's many clients, uh, one of her favorites was a guy named Frank Rivers. His name was really Frank Rivers. But <laughs> as, as so often on our podcast, his name really wasn't Frank really Frank Rivers. Um, spoiler. Spoiler, his name People was not Frank fake Rivers. names. He was apparently quite handsome, and all the girls at Miss Townsend's house referred to him as Pretty Frank. Hmm. Frank, whose real name was Richard P. Robinson. So not at anything like Frank Rivers, but go on. Was between 18 or 19 years old, and he was a clerk at maiden at a Maiden Lane Dry's goods store. Uh, at the time, being a clerk there was actually a, a, a first stop in a like good career path. Mm. Um, you would eventually make your way up um, through the ladder and then, you know, have a pretty good life for yourself. Yeah. He was also the son of a Connecticut state legislator. Oh. So he had the money. Right. <laughs> um, so he had money to spare. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I also found it so interesting that this was a kid. He's 18, 19 yeah. years old. Um, you know, taking out this, this, this uh, highly sought this after, highly sought out girl. Right. They were quite fond of each other, but over time, Robinson began to despise what uh, Helen did for a living, mm. which I believe is quite fucked up because that's where you found her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't like that you're a sex worker. Well, how did we meet? That's ironic because you found me by hiring me as a sex, sex worker. worker. It's just really... Something about throwing stones and glass yeah. houses. Uh... I will say, by the end of this episode, you're gonna everyone's going to feel very like gross about certain people of a certain gender <laughs> they're not gonna make really you, they're not gonna make you feel good in this episode i'm so sorry you guys um well helen refused to give up what she did it made her good money mm -hmm. uh and especially compared to other brothels townsend house was clean it was comfortable yeah. like uh, rosina took care of the girls like she made sure that the house was as safe as can be um always you know being aware of what's happening. Mm -hmm. She was, as madams of the house come and go, she was one of the best. And that's why yeah. it was a good situation where she was at, right? So Robinson would repeatedly ask her to stop and stop and stop. And mm -hmm. she just plain old refused. He then finally told her that he had planned on and had already begun to see other quote unquote more respectable women. Interesting. It's like, I love how he's like, I'm going to start seeing more respectable women. Okay, I'm. I've already started seeing them. Yeah. <laughs> so. What you gonna do? What a dick. Yeah, really. Um, this made Helen angry. Mm -hmm. She actually thought there was something special between them, and so she decided to threaten to publicly humiliate him. Oh. If, if he All didn't, right. like, you know, act right. Interesting. I don't think that was the best move either. No, not, not, no. But hey. This, they're young people. Yeah, you know, you, you you make mistakes. Now, Helen was a bit of a letter writer. Okay. Um, she and Robinson would exchange many letters. In fact, after her death, 90 letters between the two of them are found in a box in her room. Wow. Yeah, she loved writing. She she, she spent so much time reading, so yeah. she just became really attracted to the art of letter writing. Now, on Thursday, April 7th, 1836, mm -hmm. three days before Helen was found dead, she sent Robinson a letter trying to reconcile and renew their relationship. Mm -hmm. The letter was mostly cordial, but she did end it with the following, quote, You have known how I have loved, 
Do not, oh, do not provoke the experiment of seeing how I can hate. Oh, which I, that I, is an it, excellent line. It is an excellent line. Like you know how I love. Just imagine how I can. Hate. That is, wow. No, I love it. I love it so much. I I wish I had the flair for something like that. I also yeah. wish like that's the kind of thing that like could come naturally to me in an argument. Yeah. You know, just. Mm. Yeah, well done, you though. you know how you, I can. Nah. Do not test my hate. Um, in his response, Robinson said, quote, You are never so foolish as when you threaten me. Oh. Keep quiet until I come on Saturday night, and then we will see if we cannot be better friends hereafter. Then around 3 a.m. on April 10th, Rosina Townsend was awakened. There seemed to have been a loud knocking from the outside of the street door. It also woke up her bedmate. This is from an article published by the New York Times. Quote, on this occasion, she checked the clock on the mantel over the fireplace in her room, which indicated it was now three in the morning. The knock signaled a regular customer who had arranged to arrive late for an engagement with Elizabeth Salters, whose room was on the front east of the second floor. Salters confirmed this late arrival of a friend at the trial. Rosina checked the man's identity by peeking through the bedroom window at the front steps outside. She then lightened a lamp in her room and led him into the house. As he disappeared upstairs, she reported that she encountered her first real clue that something was amiss. Through the door at the back of the hallway, she spotted a globe lamp sitting on a marble top table in the parlor at the back of the house. It was out of place. It was lighted. Only two such lamps with the distinctive round glass front fitted on a square metal base existed in her house. Each was normally kept in a second floor bedroom. Mm-mm. Rosina entered the parlor and next noticed that the door at the backyard was ajar. This was a door that did not require a key, but instead locked with a bar that could be removed by anyone inside the house. The backyard, some 60 feet deep, contained a garden and trees, tables, a cistern, and an outdoor privy. It was fully enclosed by a continuous fence that varied in height from 8 to 12 feet. Where a neighbor's stable backed up to her fence, Rosina had pickets installed over to prevent unauthorized entry. Brothel keepers in New York City found it wisely to be security conscious. Rosina concluded that a resident or guest had gone out back, possibly to use the privy, but this was a bit odd and certainly not routine, given the inclement weather and the availability of chamber pots in every room. She returned to her room and sat down, dozing for about 10 minutes, but the open door and the absence of any sound of returning footsteps made her uneasy. She went back to the parlor, took up the out-of-place lamp, and called, Who's there? Out the back door several times. She next barred the door and climbed the stairs to to see which of the two possible rooms was missing a lamp. On the second floor, Rosina first tried the door of the back east bedroom, occupied by Maria Stevens. It was locked from the inside, just as would be expected when Maria had an overnight guest. Mm -hmm. She then tried the back west bedroom door, the door to Helen Jewett's room, but found it unlatched. When she pushed open the door, smoke billowed out. Oh, no. Rosina's first thought was that Helen and her guests were surely suffocated in there. In fright, she pounded on the door of Caroline Stewart's room, a front west directly above Rosalina's. Caroline and her companion for the night raced into the hall, and in short order, the cry of fire had awakened the entire house. Wow. Yeah. So she's worried that Helen and guest yeah. have just suffocated from the smoke that's that been perhaps there she saw like something's happening. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a fire. Right. And she's just concerned that, you know, whoever's in there is gonna suffocate and right. she's smart enough to not just bar- barge go, in herself. Just go running in, yeah. You know, she's like being very smart about the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and as you can imagine, it's it's chaotic. Right. There's people like screaming, everyone in the house is starting to scream. Um, Rosina would actually continue to shout fire, 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 mm. and rush to her bedroom window to call for help. Mm-hmm. Um, she would start screaming fire into the streets. And now we've covered a lot of New York City stories in the 1800s, yeah. and many of them include fires, right? Yeah. These buildings were not safe. Right. They were not fire resistant. The materials that were that 
were were used in the making of them were certainly not fireproof. Right. I mean, I just about like a month ago we talked about just the, one of the greater fires in New York history and and what came out of that in terms of the the firebricks right. that were just made in order to kind of prevent stuff like this. This right. is before that, so it's really important that these buildings were the fires were extinguished quickly. quickly it's going to spread, yeah, because you know. As we noticed before, sometimes it engulfs full neighborhoods. I was going to say the whole the whole block could go down. Yeah. The New York Times continued, quote, The call was heard by a watchman station at the Century Post about 60 feet away, at the corner of Thomas and Chapel, now named West Broadway, two blocks west of Broadway. He came running, joined quickly by a second watchman, whose post was three short blocks away from Franklin Chapel. In the meantime, Rosina and Maria Stevens braved the smoke to rescue to try to rescue Helen and her overnight guest. What they found sent them out of the room in horror. Mm. The bed was smoldering rather than blazing. Helen was dead. Her nightclothes reduced to ashes, and on and one side of her body charred a crusty brown. Oof. More shocking still, three bloody gashes marked her brow, and blood had pooled on the pillow beneath her body. Helen Jewett had been murdered, and her companion the previous evening was nowhere in sight. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, they get in there. And, That's horrific. And and there's no fire. There right. had been a fire. Right. Um, but it was extinguished before. Okay, so the idea is that someone set the fire and extinguished it. And that's and why closed up. And that yeah, and that's why the room was full of smoke. There was right. a fire in there. Because as you, you know, as the Times reported, she got there and the 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 it was smoldering and not right. blazing. Right. Meaning that there was a fire, but whoever did that made sure to put that fire out so it wouldn't oh. spread and then exited. Wow. Now interesting. I guess that's one way of covering your tracks, right? Like that's yeah. really what this is. But wow. It feels fascinating because someone who'd want to murder someone and then cover their tracks perhaps may want a whole house to go up in flames mm -hmm. it's interesting to see that that it was it was put out and it was smoldered right. it isn't yeah and we never really find out more about this fire really weird well you know we'll, we'll dig into more murder stuff but never really about the idea of the fire um it's important to know that there is no nypd at the time right yeah you know, we're still we're still a few years before the establishment of, of the New York Police Department. So watchmen were basically used as the primary source of justice. Mm -hmm. These men were usually laborers who would moonlight as watchmen for mm -hmm. extra cash. So they were working all day, mm -hmm. then working all night. There was, however, a small number of men who did have full-time employment as the quote-unquote police and watch officers. Okay, These were some guys who made it their business to be professional police officers. Right. But again, there's no oversight. There's no like central there there is an office, but it's not, you know, you think about organizational, it's nowhere near as sophisticated as the NYPD's, you know, yeah. oversight. Which right. you know isn't stellar, but you know <laughs> it exists. George Noble was one of these guys. He was the assistant captain of the watch who was on duty at a sentry station at City Hall Park when word came out of the murder. Noble, accompanied by two or three additional watchmen, converged on 41 Thomas Street at about four in the morning. Them, along with another professional policeman named Dennis Brink, who had arrived a half hour later, directed the watchmen to search the backyard for clues on the reasonable theory that the murderer had escaped through the back door. This was very reasonable, especially because of the fact that it was a jar. Like, mm -hmm. clearly, um, you know, Townsend had mentioned that there was something about that. It was unjarred. And yeah. so clearly this is the probably the route that whoever did this escaped out of. Yeah. No clues were found in the dark. But at daybreak, someone spotted a hatchet on the ground near the southwest back fence, wet and caked with earth. Oof. A watchman then jumped the fence into the rear yard of the house fronting on Hudson Street and discovered a long cloak. It lay about 15 feet from the fence, rather too far to make it likely that someone could have thrown it there from Thomas Street Yard. Mm -hmm. Brink and Noble theorized that the killer fled over the fence and dropped the cloak in the flight. Mm. 
There being no exit from that yard to the street, they presume that the killer scaled several more fences to escape via an alley onto Duane Street or Chapel Street. As morning came that day, the world would soon know of the horrific tragedy that occurred that night. And out of this was the most bonkers set of reporting that has that I have ever like wrote about in really <laughs> in a podcast episode. Really? Yeah. We're going to get to it in just a bit, but the reporting on this was the most sensationalized uh, account of a murder that I think I've ever covered. And that's saying something, honestly. And that's saying stuff. So we're going to get into all that when we get back from the break. If you ever look at our logo, you may notice a cute, furry black and white creature hanging out the window that's ted when he's not hanging out inside the new york missing machine ted is enjoying treats from BarkBox. BarkBox is the dog obsessed company that's devoted to one goal making dogs happy it's a monthly subscription totally customized box of themed toys and treats for your furry friends BarkBox provides the best products services and content for pups and their people Every box brings your dog more than $40 worth of toys and treats. Your first box ships immediately. Plus, BarkBox offers a 100% happy guarantee. If your pup isn't happy with their BarkBox, they'll work to make it right. So are you ready to spoil your pup with a BarkBox of their very own? If so, head over to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine. If you use our exclusive link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, valued at $35, when you sign up for multi-length plans. Okay, okay, Tedward. I'll say it again for them. Head to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine and get your pup some treats today. Okay, we are back, and... and we're going to talk about some sensational <laughs> journalism. Yeah, in a bit we're going to talk about some sensational journalism, but before that we're going to talk just about the rest of that early morning and what happened. Um, obviously, Helen is found murdered. She's found with gashes in her face. Um, her body, half it is, is charred from whatever fire mm-hmm. was set there, and not too far they find a hatchet, which is presumably what, right. was, what was used in order to do that. Um, and a cloak. And a cloak. Rosina, again, Townsend, who the the um, proprietor, the proprietor, the proprietress of the brothel, told the officers that she recalled letting a young man known as Frank Rivers mm. in to see Helen between nine and ten that evening. Rivers went right up to Helen's room, and he was still there at eleven when Helen called for a bottle of champagne. Mm. No one had seen Rivers leave, and no one else had arrived to see Helen. So with that, they thought the right person to go to was, in fact, Rivers. Yeah. It made the most sense. Um, literally the last person to see this person alive yep. was this person. No one sees him leave. Um, and Ro- Rosina's awake for most of the night. No one's exiting that front right. door. So, in fact, Rosina assumed that he was still in there with her. Right, right. She that was looking her first for... fear. Her yeah, first exactly. fear was that both of them would be suffocated in the fire. Right. So it made a lot of sense to point the, the finger at Frank. Also, he uh, threatened her like two days ago. Yes. I mean, certainly we know this. We, right, we know this. But they, they don't, don't at the time. Thing. So someone in the house supplies uh, Rivers' business address, the one on Maiden Lane near Pearl Street, and policeman Brink and Noble uh, headed down there and learned that the suspect's real name, as we know, mm. was Richard P. Robinson, a young clerk who lived in a boarding house at 42 Day Street, about half a mile south of the brothel. Uh, and they arrived there about 7 in the morning. Okay. For the record, I would absolutely watch um, a buddy cop show called Brink and Noble. Oh, my God, yeah, Brink and Noble. <laughs> oh, Noble. <laughs> Bring it again. What do you want, Brink? Bring it again. <laughs> no, I think I think Brink is probably the 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 the, the, the gritty. The, the still, no, I think Noble's the gritty guy. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. So he'd be like, "Oh, Brink. Oh, what do you want, Noble? We're done it again. <laughs> We're in it now. Oh, I'm shit. getting too old for this <laughs> shit." Uh, and in this case, clearly, Noble's being played by Danny Glover. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, so they get to the boarding house where Robinson is staying, and they were let in by a servant girl. Noble and Brink enter the room, and they announce that they're policemen looking for Robinson. Uh, James, too, uh, who is Robinson's roommate, then heads over to the bed and, and shakes him awake. The two officers asked uh, him to accompany them to the police office, which was located on Chamber Street behind City Hall in the park. Uh, two volunteered to come along as well to keep his friend company, not thinking anything bad was going to happen. Hmm. While two got dressed, Brink asked Robinson if he owned a dark cloth cloak, and the young man replied that he did not. His cloak was made of camble, a luxurious soft fabric made of wool and silk, and it was hanging in his room. Thank heavens you defined that, because that was exact. What the hell is camble? Camble. Camble. It's C-A-M-B-L-E-T. Camble. Camble. Uh, this is from the New York Times. Quote, both Brink and Noble later testified that Robinson seemed curiously unalarmed and calm during his first encounter. Only when the carriage bypassed the police office, continuing north on Broadway, did he show some small trace of concern. Robson's color changed, Brain testified, when he learned that they were headed for the brothel on Thomas Street. He still remained impassive and unexcited even when informed of the death of Helen Jewett. When Brink finally told him he was being arrested for her murder, he flatly denied the charge. So first and foremost, mm-hmm. common like a cucumber. Yeah, really. It's like, it's just like I don't know. Like if even if I was being arrested for something I didn't do, I would freak still be freaking out. out. Like yeah, the fact that he's so calm and yeah. so collect, eighteen-year-old kid. That's honestly very impressive. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, pretty awful. Um, now, here's a bit of information I didn't know. Okay. Early American criminal legal practice had at one time set the ritual moment of placing a murder suspect in direct confrontation with the victim's body. Oh. If the suspect touched the corpse and the corpse bled fresh blood, it was taken as a powerful sign of guilt in 17th century New England. What? The all-seeing eye of God provided such signs to leave no doubt as to guilt. Are you kidding me? I wish I was. Now, let's think logically here. Mm-hmm. New Yorkers <laughs> we don't in the 1830s, they retained a vestige of the original mm-hmm. ritual, but now they just watch a suspect instead of the corpse. So they still do the same thing, but instead of being like, is the corpse bleeding? They just like stare at the suspect and be like, is he being weird? How are you feeling about this? Feeling weird? <laughs> See his dead body? How about his dead body? Weird dead body. Touch huh? it again. Let me watch your face. Touch that dead body. Touch that oh dead body. Gosh. Like what? What a bizarre choice. A weird, weird thing. <laughs> so Robinson's taken up to Jewett's room, confronted with the bloody and charred body, and the officers just scrutinize all of his reactions. What do they what are they looking yeah, what are they looking for? They're looking for him to be like or or some I don't know. I don't even know what they're looking for. Like what what is the like What does guilt look like? Yeah, what does guilt look like? Like what does, oops, I killed someone look like. Oh no, they're gonna find out. I better look sad to seem Meanwhile, innocent. If horrified? I s if I, I mean yeah, because part of me is like if you see someone and you're horrified, maybe that's not guilt because it's like that's grotesque and you're nauseous right. and you're like and you can't look at that body. Or if you're not like gr- grossed out, but like you just can't look because there's shame. I don't know. Or like you know, maybe it didn't look as bad when he left her because <laughs> she hadn't burned yet. I don't know. Yeah, there's layers to this. Yeah, I don't know what they're really looking for. I mean, it's I think it's better than waiting for the body, the body to, bleed to bleed fresh blood. <laughs> <laughs> Dead body's like, oh, yeah. it's just bleeding fresh blood. Yeah, that's that's. That's pretty silly. Because meanwhile, this person died not like more than like five hours ago. There was plenty of fresh blood to be yeah. caught still. Yeah. She's currently probably still, still bleeding. bleeding. Ooh. <laughs> the officers are scrutinizing his reactions and they're amazed to note that his composure is is just is, is, is he's well composed. He has impassivity. He is just chilling out. He's fine. He's cool as a cucumber. He's just like taking it in. Which also could be a sign of guilt. I don't know. He continues to insist that he's innocent, having been home after 11 the night before. Mm-hmm. Now, around 9 o'clock, 
Two doctors are summoned by the coroner, Dr. David L. Rogers of nearby Chambers Street and Dr. James B. Kassam of Walker Street. They both arrive for an autopsy. Again, we have done a lot of these at the 1800s. Everything's happening on the spot, kids. Yeah. We are not taking the body anywhere. We're nope. doing it in the room. Right, right at the scene of the crime. So they first examined the for- they first examined the forehead wounds and determined that they were sufficient to have caused instant death. Hmm. They next made a lengthwise incision from the neck to the lower abdomen and sliced into several organs. They pronounced her lungs clear and healthy. Her chest cavity filled with a, quote, considerable quantity of blood, her stomach half full of partially digested food, and her uterus, quote, unimpregnated but laboring under an old disease. Oh. No idea what that is. Interesting. I didn't find out what that was. They just just left that and dropped it. Yeah. Okay. All right. There's an old disease here. Sucks. Nothing to worry about. Not what we're concerned with. Basing his opinion on the position of the young woman's body in bed and the peaceful expression on her face... Dr. Rogers concluded that the young woman had died without a struggle from an unexpected blow to the head. The charring of her flesh came after death. Okay, that's... So it seems that, like, the, you know, the hatchet hit, Yeah. and she died instantaneously. Right. So she didn't even, like, feel anything. That's good. So the coroner, Sherman, next rounded up 12 men to form a coroner's jury. Like you do. That's the other favorite part about this. You just go you around the block and be like, hey, you free? Yeah, literally. Um, we are back to this insane thing that has done a lot in this era that Christine has covered a bunch in her episodes. <laughs> he goes outside and grabs 12 random dudes who are gathered outside the house. He's like, hey, you, 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 you. come on up. You're now on the You're jury. Now a jury. And again, this is the coroner's jury. This basically... Um, this is a customary procedure in the case of death from doubtful cause. Right. So there's going to be a real trial, but this is like the first trial to get to that real trial. Sure. So weird. So bizarre. The jury heard 10 witness accounts from the assemblage on the premises of the brothel. Rosina Townsend gave her firsthand account under oath of how she had admitted Robinson into the house the preceding evening between 9 and 10 and how she discovered the body at about 3. Next, Elizabeth Salters and Emma French, both residents of the house, testified to seeing Robinson arrive on Saturday evening and go upstairs with Helen. Mary Berry, not the Mary, Mary Berry, not Mary Berry of the. This case has Les. <laughs> it's, it's a bit soggy. <laughs> no soggy bottoms here. Mary Berry. The brothel keeper from around the corner at 128 Duane Street. Uh, where Helen had recently lived, identified Robinson as a young man who, under the name Frank Rivers, had visited Helen regularly since 1835. Mm. Two watchmen described finding the hatchet and the cloak, and Dennis Brink described the arrest. Dr. Rogers read the autopsy report into the record. One of the last witnesses was James Two, Robinson's roommate. He was still hanging around the crime scene, no doubt forbidden to leave by Coroner Sherman, and probably very, very sorry that he decided to accompany his friend that, e- that oh, morning. Yeah. When, he, when he was asked to tell what he knew about Robinson's movement, he produced a version of the previous eating's events that was remarkably vague and very, very elastic. Mm-hmm. He and the accused took tea together at the boarding house. Two said that was around 7.30, and then he went for a walk. Then they parted company near the American Museum on Broadway at about 8.30. Two admitted he was at the Thomas Street house himself between 9.30 and 10.30, but he stayed downstairs and talked to a young woman for a few moments. Mm-hmm. He could hardly avoid admitting this since the young woman was Elizabeth Salters, oh, who was mm-hmm. president yep. at the inquest. Two went home at 10.30 that Saturday night and was asleep by 11.15, he testified. Robinson came in later and was in bed when two awoke somewhere around one and reportedly then inquired of Robinson what time he had come in. His bedmate replied half past 11. Two tried his best to defend his friend, Mm -hmm. but suffered in terms of credibility. He had claimed that it was his understanding that Robinson had known Helen for only three weeks, Mm -hmm. to which several women there who knew spoke that that was very false. Right. They're like, um... Incorrect. Boo-boo, it's my buns. (laughs) His worst moment came when he was shown the cloak that had been found in the back. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Two said he didn't know the cloak, but had seen Robinson wear a cloak similar to it. Great. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't, I don't know that one, but my boy Boy has one just like has it. One just like it. <laughs> but that's not it. But that's not it. But that helps, right? That's not the one. But he has one that looks just like him. <laughs> the coroner's jury quickly concluded that, quote, it is the opinion of this jury from evidence before them that Helen Jewett came to her death by a blow or blows inflicted on the head with a hatchet by the hand of Richard P. Robinson. Robinson was soon carted away to Bridewell, an old city jail dating back to the mid-18th century, oh. which was located on Broadway just west of City Hall. Now... I promised you weird reporting. You did. And I, I, I'm nothing but one who wants to provide. <laughs> I can't imagine. Later that morning, James Gordon Bennett, the editor of the penny paper, the New York Herald, hmm. gained entrance to Jewett's room and viewed the body. With him was an artist who would create lithographs on the scene for his newspaper. But the first person account that Bennett wrote and published describing what he saw in her room gave a rather more vivid impression than any illustration could ever. Bennett himself had an odd career. Um, he would report on crimes of the day, but also publish takedown pieces of many political elite and other newspaper editors of the day. Okay. He was a wild card in, in the newspaper land, just trying to like grasp onto some form of success. Mm -hmm. um, the latter, his takedown pieces, led to a series of physical assaults when newspaper editors that he had criticized actually beat the shit out of him with their canes in the middle of Wall Street. Wow. But it would be Bennett who had the first set of newspaper eyes on this case. In his editorial, he described the scene almost as a weird, strange, gothic uh, 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 description. Mm -hmm. He wrote that he found her, quote, beautiful female corpse, strikingly attractive. My God, he claimed to have cried out. How like a statue. I can scarcely conceive that form to be a corpse. Oh, my goodness. Three times in the article, he compares her body to a polished marble statue, <laughs> claiming that he was, quote, lost in admiration of this extraordinary sight. The description seems less than forthright. It makes no mention of the blood. I was going to say. And her wounds and the damage and the burned? charred body. Doesn't talk about any of that stuff. Um, but whether or not the description is accurate, whether or not what he said about you know, how he reacted to it was accurate. It didn't matter. The words went to the paper and the paper made news and made him money. Now, during the ensuing months before the trial began, Bennett published article after article after article about Jewett's murder and other papers seeing his success followed suit. Although some of them would take an alternative view of the crime. While Bennett would go on to raise a variety of alternative suspects to Robinson, mm even endorsing a widespread conspiracy that Robinson had been framed in order to protect the real killer, oh. a more wealthy and powerful client of Jewett, other papers tended to favor Robinson's guilt. Yeah. Bennett portrayed Jewett as a glamorous figure of great beauty who had often been seen in the New York streets in her green silk dress and fine jewelry. The girl in green. The girl in green who never really wore green and maybe in one photo perhaps wore green but probably didn't never wore green because at at this time, there weren't any real photos of right. people wearing any sort of colors, but this is the claim that was claimed. Cool. The attention to this case made by Bennett and his newspaper, as well as other newspapers, um, actually led to a kind of protest movement, probably oh. one of the first of the day. Every day, crowds gathered at the jail where Robinson was held and at the Thomas Street brothel where Helen, where Helen was murdered mm. and where, according to one of Bennett's reports, her ghost could sometimes be seen oh, through the windows. Gotta be bad for poor uh, Rosina's business, though, to have these protests out there. Yeah. These crowds were divided into two groups, which could be discerned by their attire. Those who revered Jewett and wanted to see justice for her murderer and wanted to see justice for her murder began wearing white fur hats with ribbons of black crepe. Interesting. A style of headwear that came to be known as a, quote, Helen Jewett mourner. Wow. I thought you were going to say they had to wear green, but go on. Well, yeah, no. Because these people know this is all bullshit. <laughs> Meanwhile, the young working class men who believed Robinson was innocent, they wore a style of hat called Robinson caps, hmm. as well as cloaks with a fringe <laughs> like the one that was being used as evidence against the young man who they believed was innocent. Thus proving that everyone has that cloak, not just him and the murderer. 
Yeah. And it's important to note that a good majority of the people standing up for Jue were of the female uh, persuasion. Uh, persuasion. <laughs> and um, it was very well known that the good majority of the people standing up for Robinson were all young privileged men. Fascinating. Go figure. Go figure. Um, during the months before the trial, violent assaults by young clerks on prostitutes and other young women increased oh, wow. sharply. Uh, and after numerous numerous copycat crimes were perpetrated as well. Wow. So it became even more unsafe to yeah. be involved in any type of sex work. Yeah. People were using this as a motivation to commit more sex work crimes. Yeah. And like you like mentioned before, this can be good for business. Of course it's not good for business. Most people who are going to these brothels are doing it as discreetly right. as possible. If there's crowds out there every single They're day, not going no in. one's going. So business is also doing so poorly for Townsend as sure. well. So she's now losing money. The girls in the in the brothel are losing money. Yeah. And and no one's really succeeding. Except for right. these this newspaper man who's like walking out with, with bankrolls and money because mm-hmm. of this a lot, basically a lot of the bullshit that he has created right. around it. The sensationalism of the news. On June second, eighteen thirty six, Robinson's trial for murder begins. Ex district of attorney, ex district attorney of New York, Ogden Hoffman appears for the defense. During the trial, the prosecution revealed the existence of many letters to Helen Jewett that explicitly threatened to murder her. Some of which were signed by Robinson himself. The prosecutor, however, failed to prove the handwriting was Robinson's, and so was forbidden to read the letters aloud to the jury. Hmm. During the trial, Rosina Townsend testified with all the information she knew from that night. Ogden paid her words no mind. Instead, he concocted an ironclad but most likely bullshit alibi. They found a respected store owner named Mr. Furlong and had him swear that Robinson had been at his store downtown around 10.30 p.m., which, if was true, would disprove the testimony of Rosina, who has said he was in Helen Jewett's room at the time, but also would contradict the testimony of James Two, who had told the night night watchman the morning after the murder uh, when they had indeed visited the brothel together the night before. Right. However, after these testimonies, you know, the solid rock star one from Rosina Mm -hmm. and the rock ironclad bullshit one from Hmm. Mr. Furlong, regardless of the fact that Two's entire statement was nullified because of the statement, the judge instructed the jury to base their decision on the fact that, well, either Mr. Furlong is lying or Miss Townsend is lying, and you should decide which one is lying. He then told them to make their decision on who to believe by considering the reputation of each witness in their decision. He told them not to believe a prostitute, and they didn't. As a result, the jury chose to believe Furlong over Townsend. It took only 15 minutes to acquit Robinson. Sounds like grounds on grounds on grounds for appeal Mm -hmm. for the judge to be like, "Um, just so you know... um, don't believe this one person. I'm telling you. Yeah, I mean, she was she's a prostitute. Why, why don't believe, believe this person. Like, that was the whole. That was really the whole thing. And he didn't like explicitly say don't believe her. He just, you know, it's important to know this is a respected businessman of the time, and she's a prostitute. Make that decision on your own. I mean, so if flawed. A equals B and B equals C. Then A equals C. So flawed. Horrible. Wow. After the acquittal, there were cheers from Robinson supporters when they returned. Uh, the verdict of not guilty. After leaving the courtroom, a companion of Robinson's was reportedly seen giving an envelope to one of the jurors. <gasps> Soon after the trial, Richard Robinson left New York for Texas. He died two years later of a fever. Hmm. Reportedly on his deathbed, he repeated the name Helen Jewett. Whew. And that is wow. the story. So is it technically still unsolved even though we it's very yeah, obvious who technically it's still unsolved wow. uh, and in that you know only there's only one real right. person brought to trial there was only one person brought to trial and he was acquitted and he was acquitted wow. and so it's left unsolved that means that is we are very sure why. oh it was that right. it is that is it's robinson it's rich robinson there's no doubt I yeah mean, everything points to him motivation points to him the actual evening points to him. The bullshit points to him. Mr. Furlong. I mean, like all these, th- it just points to him. And it's and yeah. it's one of those cases where it's like, I'm not even going to try to make any other No, ideas, no, no, it was, not, it was him. It feels kind of just like obnoxiously rude to like assume it's be anyone else. Right. Wow. And they have what a, it. what a, what a, 
What hot nonsense. A lot of, 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 a lot of mental, a lot of, a lot of bad things yeah. in this guy. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you have it, well, folks. Th- thanks for that. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Oh. <laughs> uh, if you have any other thoughts or ideas, we got a bunch of, uh, over the break, a, a few people reached out with um, a lot of information that we're going to be bringing up. Someone actually reported um, some information, uh, some bonus information about the 9-11 case. Hey. We're going to talk about that um, probably at the end of the season. I'll, I'll, we, we, can, we, we can push that with the, the rest of our reviews of the or additional information from this season. But yeah, someone someone reached out to us with some additional information about something that I had uh, I had thought mm. and um, and uh, yeah and so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that by far you guys know if you, you let us know it we'll talk about it so person who reached out you're hearing it from me right now thank you for reaching out I said thank you then I said thank you now they DM'd <laughs> us on the old Instagram um, so if you have any ideas um, you know thoughts all that jazz reach out to us and uh, the last episode of the season we're going to talk about all these things we're going to talk about your your ideas our ideas um, but I got a few other people who reached out over the break with uh, other other thoughts about some of the cases so I'm really excited to get to those so keep them coming you can either DM us on Instagram at NY Mystery Machine or um, you can email us uh, at nymysterymachine at gmail.com those are the two best ways yeah. of doing it and uh, if you want you head over to Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and leave us a review with five stars. Tell us what you love. Tell us, you know, what you want to see more of. Tell us, you know, all the things you appreciate. You can also do that on Audible. Um, and you can do that on Spotify by just leaving five stars. Five stars all around. Yeah. We're really excited. It's going to be a fun year. Yeah. We're, we're excited to get into it. Thanks for, for coming back with us. And we're, we're back all new uh, next week and the rest of the month as well. Uh, forevermore. Forevermore. Well, forevermore. <laughs> but maybe forevermore. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? All right. Uh, I've been Adam Ace. I'm Christine Medley. And thank you for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Time in a hole. Buff all ghosts. <laughs> <laughs>